Judy is one of those women that you just want to sit at her feet. She is the definition. She's the living definition of Proverbs 31 woman. She has four beautiful children, eight grandkids, and has been married for 45 years. She is an amazing woman, and I feel that we're just very privileged to be able to listen to her speak this morning. And the great thing about Judy is that we are all going to be blessed by her by hearing her speak and hearing her wisdom, but she's going to be blessed by it too, which is awesome. And another wonderful thing that I love about Judy is she's so humble. Ever, all her wisdom and all the experience and everything that she's gleaned and um, just her Proverbs 31-ness, she boasts about that, yes, the Proverbs 31-ness. She, boasts, she doesn't boast herself about their, those traits and characteristics. She boasts in the Lord about that. And Judy is just one of those women that I can look at and aspire to be one of those days. I would love to be a woman like that where young women would want to come to me and sit at my feet one day too. So I just have the honor and the privilege to introduce Judy. I'm so excited that she's here this morning. Well, I hope I can live up to uh, all of that. I am very happy to be with you this morning on a cold morning, and I am very proud of you for getting out with little ones when it's this cold. Um, I want to start by just commending you for your commitment to motherhood and your desire to do it well. Um, As an older woman in the Lord, that's just really encouraging to me to see all of you wanting to do that. And I want to say that my experience, I've been a mother now for 38 years, uh, and having added four spouses and eight grandchildren who range from seven years old and the baby tomorrow will be one year old, uh, it's quite an adventure. And uh, I don't know if this is the good news, bad news, but it's very ongoing. I haven't found that it had this uh, conclusion point. So let me open us with prayer, and we'll get started. Lord, we do thank you for this privilege of being called to be mothers. And um, we do regard it as a divine calling, and we do regard it as something you have granted us uh, stewardship over these children for a time. And I pray that this morning uh, you would encourage each of these moms. I pray that your spirit would just give them uh, increased commitment to following hard after you and what it looks like to be a mother of toddlers. And, Lord, that uh, your spirit would just um, enable them to have steadfastness and strength and peace and rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start our time this morning by asking you to think about the suitcase or the bag that you take with you on trips. And what do you like about it? What would you change about it? Um, Just how you feel about it. So think for just a moment about the bag that you grab when you're going to go somewhere. Mine is tapestry, and I love it because I can identify it when it comes off the luggage carousel. But I have to admit, it is falling apart. I have it safety pinned in several places. But... Even though James gave me a new one over the holidays, I'm having a hard time parting with this one because I know it so well. I know where I can pack each little item and how I can maximize getting everything into that bag. So especially now with extra charges on baggage, I can manage to get it all in that one. Um, And that bag and I have shared a lot of memories. We just got a lot of places together, and so it triggers those memories for me. My youngest daughter, after she married, uh, worked for a professor at Baylor 
for a while, and one day I drove to Waco to have lunch with her, and I got there early, so I went over to the professor's office and met him, and he invited me into his office. And in his office, his desk was kind of at the back, and there was a rug in front, and then he had kind of this old suitcase out there, and it had a very uh, scratched, scarred-up Baylor pennant sticker on it. And I asked him about it, and he said that he had come from Tennessee to Baylor in the 50s as a freshman, and when he came, he came on the train, and he brought everything that he was going to bring for that entire freshman year in that bag. And he had put that big pennant on it because he wanted to be sure that bag got put off of the luggage car in Waco since it had everything that he needed. But that bag he carried back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on the train all the time he was at Baylor. And he said he put it there because it reminded him of the foundation he had gotten in that, those years and that that had influenced his character in life and even his career and what he had done in life. And so he wanted to keep it prominent there. Now, in the adventure of mothering, you're going to carry a lot of bags. Um, you're already familiar with the diaper bag and its many forms and variations. And I must say that's the difference between my generation and yours. They all looked alike. There was, there was no design to diaper bags. Uh, you're getting acquainted with the backpack. That'll be the next phase that you go through is figuring out that bag and how to take it. But I want to talk to you this morning about taking a conviction bag with you along in your adventures of mothering. And I want to encourage you this morning to think about what convictions you would put in it and how you would teach them, begin to teach them to your toddlers so that that bag becomes something that could represent to them a foundation and something they would not want to part with because it reminded them of who they are and where they are going and what their purpose is. So I'm going to talk about uh, ten convictions this morning. These are mine. I am not suggesting that you wholesale adopt my ten convictions. But what I want to do is to spark your thinking and encourage you afterward to do some thinking about it. And um, in trying to just think how to present this, uh, I asked my younger daughter if she would um, design some, quote, flares. I don't Facebook, but... The other, the other person in my household does, and so I hear all about it all the time. But I looked it up on Facebook, and it defines a flare as some way that you show off your interest and describe yourself in a way that your friends will remember and even want to imitate. So I asked her, I said, could, you know, I'm going to send you what I want to say. Could you design some little designs that would be flares? So I actually am going to have ten flares to put on my bag this morning. Between the ages of two and five, you have the opportunity to influence your children the most that you're ever going to have the rest of their lives. The reason for that is they're the most dependent on you during that time frame than they're ever going to be. And secondly, there's the least peer pressure that they're ever going to have is during that time of two to five. So I want to encourage you to use this time when they're dependent on you to just maximize what you can teach them. George Barna recently did a survey on current day teenagers, and here are the five influences on them right now. Uh, TV, internet, movies, magazines, and music. Here are the three least on them right now. Teachers, parents, and school. You are headed for this. And so maximize these few years before that begins to be down there. And what I want to do today is to go over ten convictions I would teach toddlers and uh, give you some ideas and suggest some skills that you need to have to do that so that you create a trunk that will last down the track of their lives. 
Now, I'm defining conviction as just a core belief that you have that influences how you think, how you talk, what actions you choose, and really forms your character. There's no set number of them, but the subject is definitely worthy of you doing some thinking about. Now, I'm going to talk about ten of them today, and I was thinking about just organizationally how to present it, and it occurred to me that I can relate my ten very loosely to the Ten Commandments, and you will see it is a loose connection. But what I'm going to do is think what is the principle behind the commandment and how could you teach that to toddlers. In other words, how can you plant seeds in those years between two and five that you can build on through those elementary years and even adolescent years while they're still under your roof. Uh, And uh, a thought left me what I was going to say about that, so I won't say it. Oh, I know what I was going to say, that I would consider this like the training wheels version of the Ten Commandments. You know, you learn to ride a bike with those training wheels, and then when you're old enough, you drop those off. And so that's what I'm going to call this is the training wheels version. So we'll get started. The first flare, uh, it says that God is the omnibirthdayologist, the birthday maker of birth and you, and he made it possible for you to have a second birthday to be in relationship with him. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the concept behind that commandment is that God is supreme and God is sovereign. So I was trying to think, now how do you teach that deep theology to toddlers? And one thing that toddlers are interested in are birthdays. They're very interested in their own. And and I note from my grandchildren, they go to lots of birthday parties. So the whole birthday thing is around them a lot. And so I thought if they could grasp that God created the world and he created them and their birthday and he has done everything possible for them to have a second birthday to be in relationship with him, that would give them a basis for understanding God is sovereign and supreme over everything. And so uh, I made up this word in our family um, when I was teaching another lesson um, some years back Omni-birthdayologist. And omni means all, and ologist is one who does something. So omni-birthdayologist is the maker of all birthdays. And that is who God is. And anyway, we liked the word in our family because we could sing it to supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and dance around, and so everybody liked, uh, liked the word. And I've actually used our family... Uh, When our children married, we said, you don't have to come home for holidays, but if you would set aside, if we could all set aside one long weekend a year and go on a family trip, we would do that. And so we do that. So the last two family trips, I've actually been teaching these things to um, my grandchildren that I'm going to talk about with this commandment. And I am going to spend a little bit more time here, but don't think you're going to be here all morning because this is my longest explanation and the rest of them will be shorter. But there are three birthdays I want them to know about. One is that God created the earth and that he made the birthday for the earth. God created them and he designed their birthday. And then the third one being that God has done everything so that they could have a second birthday, uh, a spiritual one, to be related to him. So I'm going to demonstrate to you how I I did this um, with the grandchildren. And actually, I brought um, a couple of pictures to show you that I am real life. And this was, uh, we would just sit on the floor, and we were obviously going to go swimming very soon afterwards. So the, the thing was, everybody was to get on their swimsuit, come sit on the floor, and then we would uh, have our little um, 
emphasis on our, our birthday thing. And so you can see they actually, I had their attention for a little bit of time, not, not forever, but um, here's one already turned around that's doing something else. But here's a cute one where Ellie is really concentrating to learn the verse. So I'm going to teach you this uh, very simply just so you get an idea. And I may have done this another visit here. If I did, you can just ignore it. But let's open the Bible. And the very first page, let's look at what the first words are in the Bible. Grandma is going to point here, and you follow me. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning, that means that God made the birthday for the earth. We're going to learn that verse. We're going to do the address first. We're going to hold our hands like the Bible and say, book. And then we're going to use the chapter 1 and verse 1, and that's the address. Just like you know somebody's street address so you can find where they live. So Genesis 1, 1. There was no time. So God started the clock ticking. So hold your hands like a clock. In the beginning, and this is a sign language for God. He divides right from wrong. In the beginning, God Created. Now, you might think that we use the sign like this for created because he built it. No. What Genesis tells us, he said it. So we will do created like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens. Can you make big, big heavens? Because he made the whole universe. And the earth. And we use a circle for the earth. Now, will you say it with me and try to follow? Indulge me to be two between two and five. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, 1. We'd always say the address first and last. Now, because I wanted them to connect this to a birthday, we sang it to happy birthday because I wanted them, I want them, when they hear the song happy birthday, I want them to think about Genesis 1-1. I want them to connect that back to it. So I wanted to be purposeful about it. So we would sing it this way. Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's an easy one to do. So that will help it stick into their mind. And then... I taught them the seven days of creation, and I did it by just using one thing each day. But I want to walk through this with you just so to give you an idea of how you bring something down, something that's very important and something that is very true, but you just bring it down to how can they grasp it and understand it. When your mommy and daddy knew that you were going to be born, they got ready a room for you. They made it look really nice. They made it really comfortable. And they put everything in it that would be necessary for you when you came to be in that room. When God created the world, he was preparing it for someone very special. So let's go through what God did to get that place ready for the someone very special that he was preparing for. On day one, it was very dark. Can you close your eyes and hold your hands up against them so it's very, very dark? And on day one, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Can you open your eyes and see the light? On day two, it was covered with water. And so God took the water and he pushed some up and some down. And in between, he put air. Can you take a big breath and then exhale the air? 
God was creating this place to be ready for someone very special, and they were going to need air. On day three, God created a land, and he said to the water, stop right there. And then on the land, he created plants, like little flowers and bushes and shrubs and tall trees and even forests. And on day four, God went back to his creation of light, and he made some very specific lights. He made the sun, he made the moon, and he made all those twinkling stars that you see at night and that you sing about when you sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. On day five, God went back to that water and air that he had created, and he filled up the water with fish, and he filled up the air with birds. He was getting this place ready for something very, someone very special. On day six, God made all the animals. He made elephants with long trunks and giraffes with long necks and lions with huge roars and, as we say at our house, and bears that say sickum. And then, <laughs> except when they get beat by the Aggies like last night, um, and then God had this place ready for someone very special. And on day six, God made a daddy, like pulling a cap down, and a mommy, fluff your hair. And God put them in this very special place. Now, on day seven, God rested, not because he was tired, but because he was all done. And the number seven, when you read it in the Bible, means completion. So you are setting a foundation for them to understand a whole lot about God. Uh, and then the next family vacation we did um, this last summer, we did um, Acts 16.31. Well, I'm skipping. Let me go back to the, their birthday just a minute. The Earth's birthday first, and then now their birthday. Use Psalm 139 to talk about their birthday because it's just so wonderful about how it describes how God designed and created them. But this little book, and I have it on your sheet, is called God is With Me. It's out of print, but you can get it on Amazon and use books, and it's not very expensive. If you find one, if I find one on there, I generally order two. But it's just a paraphrase of uh, Psalm 139, and I read this to my grandchildren every time they come over, and I just fill their name uh, in it. God is with Ellie. He's with him when she sits down, when she stands up, when she goes outside to play, when she goes to bed, when she goes up, 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 when she goes down, down, down. If she wakes up before anyone else does, God is still with her. And so I just fill it in with their individual name, and they love this book. They'll even say to me, let's read the book about me. So they're, they're used to that. And so then the third birthday is to teach them lay the foundation for them being able to understand how to receive Christ and have that second birthday. And so what I did this last family trip when we went this last summer, the verse we learned was Acts 16.31. So I'm going to show you the signs to that uh, just quickly. Now, 16.31 is a little harder to do. Tyra, did you come to Good News Club at my house any? Because we used to do all these verses with signs. Tyra was my older daughter's friend, and she used to be at my house when growing up. Uh, so the numbers are harder here, so you may just want to do book, Acts 16:31. But here's the sign for the verses, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Here's for believe what I use. You look in God's word, you put it in your head, but it has to go to your heart. That's believe. Believe on the Lord, and I just make an L, and then Jesus, the nail prints in his hand, Christ, make a C, so believe 
on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be. And for saved, I bend down and I talk about you're stuck in just the stickiest mud and you cannot get out. And Jesus lifts you. You will be saved. And they love to do that. They love to get out and act like they're getting out and come up. And then we sang that one to happy birthday. And you can do that by singing the front part of it a couple of times. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And so that was fun for them to do. And so that lays a foundation for them when they understand about sin and who Christ is. And I just put on your list some other tools I use for that. This is the wordless book from CEF, and it's um, easy for children using the colors to talk about how they receive Christ. This is the Gospel Fuzzies glove, and it's a little song and puppet thing that has the same colors, and uh, kids like to see those little fellows appear and sing about them. So those are other ways to amplify that third birthday. So you can lay this foundation and as they get older, build on it. But a child who knows how the earth got here and a child who understands how they got here and a child who understands where they can go when they're in relationship with God is several steps up on lots of people. And I can verify that because my husband's the pastoral care minister, and he spends a lot of time and effort helping people who don't know those things yet and the confusion it's created in their life. So I encourage you to put the omnibirthdayologist flair on your bag of convictions. The second commandment says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nor serve them. And so this is about idols. And an idol is anything that you put above God. It's really what you value most in life. And it's what you chase after, what you spend time on. And, you know, you just think as women, there's lots of things that we allow to get ahead of God in our lives. Our house, our car, our children, our handbag, uh, fame, reputation, appearance, lots of things. And so in our family, we thought, what can we do that will help us keep God first? And we decided was that putting a high value on memorizing and meditating on Scripture would help us do that because the Bible itself says that Scripture is profitable for correction and for reproof and for being on the path of righteousness. So we thought if we put a high value on learning Scripture, that will constantly be improving our perspective and helping us keep God first and making us aware of idols that we have. So in our family, we decided that we would reward Scripture memory. And uh, we started that when they were very young. And you should take advantage of this while your children are in these toddler ages. They can memorize a ton of Scripture. They are oral learners, and they are parrots. They like to uh, repeat sounds and things back to you. And so it's just a great, and they can just, they can learn them and they can remember them a lot better than I could even when I was younger, but certainly now they can. And just do it with using signs, so you're bringing it down to tangible with songs and with uh, uh, games, just play games with it, and then with rewards. And I was talking with one of my daughter-in-laws about this, and she was doing some things with her children and, and looking for what were great little rewards, you know, stickers, M&Ms. And I did that when they were little. We would just write all the verses we learned 
on like a little spiral thing like this, and I'll just keep it at one in the glove box, one at the kitchen table, and then we could review them and just look at the address and see who could say it and whatever. But you know what the greatest reward was for my kids because there were four of them, and this was you cannot have this reward, and it's a shame, but um, because then children could ride in the front seat was who got to ride in the front seat. <laughs> And they would argue over that if we all got in the car. Who gets to, you know, three of them were going to be in the back, one in the front. And so I used it as a great reward. So I had this wonderful reward. You get to ride in the front seat today if you can say your verses. But even when they got to be teenagers, we used it as a means for them to earn extra money. If they wanted a tennis racket or something, we'd lay out a plan. If they memorized scripture, we would reward that. We did not pay them for grades. We did not pay them for any other kind of accomplishments, but we have always rewarded scripture memory with something tangible of reward. And we still do that on our family trips. There's something to learn before you get there. If you've learned it, uh, there's a reward for you when you arrive. Uh, I put on your page just some of the verses just to give you some ideas. Um, I've already done the happy birthday ones. We did Ephesians 4.32 to Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, and that was a big hit at our house because the boys especially love to sing it in their gruff voices, which is kind of funny since the verse was about being kind. But it's, it fits well. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. It fits to that. And then the Yankee Doodle one was another big hit to um, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1. And I would even, you know, get out wooden spoons and pots and let us, we'd march around the house singing it. Now you remember, this is between the ages of 2 and 5, and they would all cringe as adults to even hear me say such things. And then John 3.16 fits really nicely at Christmas to uh, Silent Night, starting with the uh, address twice. John 3.16, John 3.16, and then just finish it out with the rest of the song. Sometimes we did chapters. As children, they learned Psalm 1, and even recently on our family trip, we all learned Psalm 127. Now, the other thing I did that helped uh, with learning scripture when they were little is I had this puppet, and his name is Verses, and he only wakes up when he hears children saying Bible verses. And so with the grandchildren now, this is a huge hit, too. And he's wearing out. I don't know if he's going to make it through their entire childhood. But if he hears um, children saying verses, he wakes up. He kind of peeks out. He's very shy. And then he'll stretch when he first wakes up because he has been asleep so long and his body's all twisted up, so it takes a little while. I've got stitching all over him trying to hold him together. And he really stretches, and he looks at everybody. And he talks to me a lot in my ear, but he'll tell me that he wants to hear him say it again, and then he wants to learn it, and they can teach it to him. And he always missays it, and they correct him. Like he'll say Genesis 3-3 instead of Genesis 1-1. And uh, if they get too rambunctious, he goes back in his shell, and he disappears, and they can't talk to him anymore. So it's a great tool. So... You know, create a little character that you just do. I don't, you know, I wouldn't do that all the time, but I would do it once in a while, and it was always a treat to have verses come out. And, it, you know, if you could say some verses, that would wake him up. So I would encourage you to value God's word and put that flare on your conviction bag and think of ways to maximize this time period that they are so able to absorb learning scripture. The third commandment says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We wanted our children to leave home 
uh, not just with this little small brown paper bag of God. We wanted them to have a grasp of his omniness and his infinite ways. And we realized that God has really revealed a lot about himself in Scripture through his names and describing himself. And so we decided we would teach the children uh, different biblical names for God and different descriptions of him. And we did it in just a really simple way. And these are my original cards from way back when. And I just brought them so you could see that I, you know, I didn't go to great extremes to do any of this. It was just simple, and I was in a garden club, and in fact, I think Ophelia was in the same garden club with me. Uh, and we had something and had invitations, so we didn't use them all, so I just was resourceful and used them for my um, names for God. And so I would just write on the uh, front what the name was, and then I would try to attach something to the card that was very tangible for them, something out of their world and experience that they could identify with. So this one is God is trustworthy, and we've just talked about how a paper towel can absorb your spill and how God is trustworthy. He can absorb your sin, your insecurities, your stubbornness, your willfulness. God is trustworthy. And then uh, this was another one they loved because in their era growing up, everywhere you went they had these stupid gumball things that you put money in and, you know, they it looked like you were going to get a prize, but you never did. And it took them a long time to learn that that was a waste of money. But I capitalized on that. And so for God is worthy, I drew a gumball machine and I said, when you put your heart in God's gumball machine, you do not have to worry. Everything that you receive will be worthwhile. Righteousness, purity, satisfaction, eternal life, peace, God is worthy of you giving your heart to. Uh, kind, we just, I put a soft piece from one of their blankets and sandpaper and said, this is the way God wants to treat you all the time. This is his character. Sometimes you will feel like this, but it's usually when you're running from him or you're turning from him. This is the way God's character is and the way he wants to relate to you. So I think I put on the back of your sheet a number of those and what we did. Oh, one of their favorites, too, was for omnipresent, uh, to take an envelope and write God's return address is everywhere. And they thought that was fun when they were first learning to print, that they could do that. So I would encourage you to put the flair of teaching your children about God's names on your bag of convictions. And that will help them to not take his name in vain. And that you can have lots more explanation about that as they grow. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And what this commandment is about is really about worship. And, you know, the New Testament corollary, and we say this here at Watermark, is that we want to worship him all week. We want to have a Not just a little time frame on Sunday we worship him, but we want to worship him all through the week. And so uh, in our family, trying to talk about how can we help our children grasp this concept that God is worthy of our worship and, and that it would be on their minds daily and not just segregated to some few times. And so what we uh, talked about is uh, helping them to understand that there is an eternity and that God is preparing a wonderful place for us, and that it lasts forever. And we would talk about God's forever and ever place. And the terminology we would use for that is that there are no endings there. And capitalize on that children, especially between two and five, and really even when they're teenagers, do not like endings. 
you know what I'm talking about. Of course, they didn't have videos in those days that they would watch maybe something on TV and say, don't you hate it when that is over, when that program has ended and you're not going to see that again, you know, until the next day if it's on that day or whatever. Don't you hate it when it's getting dark and mom says you have to come inside? And don't you hate it when we say it is bedtime, you have to go to bed? And don't you hate it when you're at Chuck E. Cheese and we say, five more minutes and we're going to leave. And we would talk about, in heaven there will be no more, five more minutes and you have to leave or stop doing whatever you're doing that you enjoy. And so we began teaching them that when they were very young. And another thing we did at this point when they were young that I think really helped them as they went through life is we talked about that their body is a body house and that the real person who is them lives inside. And so we would talk about, you know, the real Lauren lives inside your body house. That part of you that makes you Lauren, that personality, that decision-making, that creativity, that thinking part of you, that is the real Lauren who lives inside this body house. Now, you know, your body house can wear out or you have an injury and something can happen to it. And so what I did was I cut out felt figures and I would talk about there's a real you who lives inside your body house and talk about that death is not annihilation. The real you lives forever. And I would talk about with them your body house and the real you will separate And death is separation, but it is never biblically in any way annihilation. And so the real you, when something would happen like death, the real you would go right to be with Jesus. And what I would do is cut out, this is so tiny, a little cross. Like when you had received Jesus, we put a cross on the real you. And that you would go to be with the Lord. Now your body house will go to the ground. And one day, Jesus will resurrect that body and give you a different body house. But the real you will live forever. And this is what I would say between two and five. I never got into hell. I just said, the real you will live forever, either with God or without God. And then, as they were old enough to understand about receiving Christ, they could put all that together. This gave me lots of room as they... uh, matured to talk about the rapture. What happens in the rapture? You're going to go right then to be with God, and you'll have a resurrected body right then. Uh, So it just was a good way to explain what happens in life, and I felt like by doing that, as things occurred down the road, that we had a good way to talk about what does that mean and to understand that that real person is going to live forever. And that helps give a child security. As they got older, and I thought I would just go a little bit further with this. This wasn't in their toddler ages. We, um, James had a white marker board in the kitchen, and he would leave messages for the kids on it weekly. And this was a big hit with them. Uh, he traveled some during the years, like when they were kind of middle school and high school. And so he would always leave them notes on that white marker board before he ever left town. And, but one of the things we did with this concept of teaching about eternity is we put a fraction up there, like with the date, January 15th, over eternity. And we talked about with them that in a fraction, 
the denominator value determines the value of the numerator. For instance, 1 over 2, that 1 is pretty large, but if you make it 1 over 1,000, that numerator decreases in value. If it's 1 over 10,000, it gets even smaller. If it's 1 over eternity, it is becoming much, much less in value. And so we use that just to constantly kind of say, we want to live life like a fraction. Today is over eternity. Single events are over eternity. And that helped us process and helped us think more biblically by doing that. And so uh, we would just generally use that as an analogy. And um, for instance, in one of our children in high school, uh, so you didn't make the cheerleading squad your senior year, and you had been on it freshman, sophomore, junior year, and that hurts. It's embarrassing, and you're very, very sad. But let's put that over eternity, and that will help you heal. It will help you process. It will help you have hope. It will help you understand that the end result of that is not as huge as you are feeling right now. So if you can have, choose in your mind to think, I am putting that I didn't make that squad over eternity, that will help you gain some perspective to it. And so we've done that a lot in life uh, as things have happened. We've said, okay, let's put it in a fraction. Let's put it over eternity because that's how we choose to live life because we know from the Bible that that is true, that we are headed there. So I would recommend that you teach your children some things about eternity and have some ways to do that in your conviction bag. The fifth commandment is honor your mother and father. Wasn't God gracious to put that in? And then in the New Testament in Ephesians, he makes it just as clear. Ephesians 6.1 is children obey your parents for in the Lord for this is right. Um, you know, when we look at that, it's just clear. To obey is God's very best way. And we would just use that sentence. And I use that with my grandchildren now. Um, to obey is the very best way. And we talked about that obedience is God's umbrella of protection over you. And when you obey, you are under God's umbrella of protection. And when you disobey, you are stepping outside that umbrella of protection. And uh, sometimes I would let them go out and walk in the rain, and we would talk about the difference of having the umbrella or not having the umbrella. And uh, we would look at biblical characters, and we would say, is that is Joseph under God's umbrella of protection, and what happened to him? Is Samson under God's umbrella of protection when he decided to do this, and what happened? So that they could begin to link that, yes, when you obey, there, it is beneficial and when you disobey, there are consequences. And so we just use, you know, little cocktail umbrella things sometimes to remind them about that and maybe just set some out on a counter and when they obey, give them them and they can take them to their room or uh, set some out and when they disobey, take one away and see who had the most uh, left at the end of the day. Uh, don't give up on teaching your children to obey. I mean, it's just so... I, I know right now in this time period of your life, you feel like it is endless and it wears you out and sometimes you just think, I don't care. But ask God to give you endurance in that because it will transfer so much into their life. It will make such a difference in how they relate to authority and how they do in jobs and so on. Um, 
it's well worth taking a nap in order to pursue it further. So I encourage you to put the umbrella uh, flare into your conviction bag. The sixth commandment says, thou shalt not steal. And we wanted to teach our children that life is valuable, that it is to be honored. And we wanted to lay a foundation when they were small that we could build on through life uh, for them to have that conviction. And we did it with this sentence. A baby is always a gift from God. And the sign language for all is where you put your this hand and this hand together and you go, all the way around. And I would say to them, is this all? Is this all? Is this all? No. This is all. A baby is always a gift from God. And I would say it this way to them. Can you turn your head where I see your ear? Because mommy wants to tell you something really important. Can I see your ear so I know you're really listening to me? Because I want to tell you something that I want you to remember now and I want you to remember when you're a big mommy and daddy. A baby is always a gift from God. And so we would, um, like if we went to the hospital to see the nursery when somebody had a baby, we would would stand there and say that. These babies are gifts from God. If we ran into a baby somewhere, maybe on the elevator or something, I would remind them that baby is a gift from God. And look for times to teach them that. I thought this fall with Sarah Palin's baby being seen on TV, it was a great time to say That baby has some very special needs. God will give his mommy and daddy the special love they need for those special needs. But that baby is a gift from God. If a child grasps that life in the womb is valuable, they will value life in lots of situations. And the horrific things we read about child abuse, I think, stem from that if people cross that line of saying life is not valuable in the womb, then you can decide this life is not valuable here or here or here. So I think it is well worth teaching your child to do that. So I would encourage you to teach your children that life in the womb is valuable and then that will affect how they view all of life down the road. Flare number seven Uh, The seventh commandment says, thou shalt not commit adultery. So how in the world are you going to teach a child about adultery? But once again, we just had a sentence that we used when they were little, and then we built on that as they got older. And that sentence was, a wedding is God's plan to begin a new family of a mommy and a daddy that is to last for a lifetime. And so just let them play, get wedding books, and let them cut out pictures of dresses and tuxedos and rings and wedding cakes and just all kinds, make little collages. Tool is cheap, bike tool and, you know, make arches over the table where they can play with uh, a doll that's going to get married. And uh, Madame Alexander, I don't, I assume they still make a little five-inch doll with a bride and a groom. They were real fun. We had those and they would play with those. When they get old enough, to sit still for 30 minutes, take them to a wedding so they can see all the pomp and circumstance. And uh, if you have grandparents who have followed that plan, show them their wedding pictures so they see. They, they started at, at a wedding, and they were a mommy and daddy who's going for a lifetime. But if you do this when they're young, you are laying a foundation for lots of discussion down the road on morality and on purity. And uh, you're laying that foundation that sets them up 
for following God's plan. So I encourage you to have a wedding flare on your bag of convictions. And flare number eight for the eighth commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. We wanted to teach our children uh, how to be responsible financially and not steal in the traditional sense, of course, but also not to waste, uh, but to be good stewards of what God has granted them care over. And so we used again a sentence, God owns everything. We get to take care of some of it for him. And so just instilling that God is the owner of everything, and he has just loaned it to us. And by the way, that's even true of your children. They are his, and he has loaned them to you. And so we want to have good stewardship in raising them, too. And we started out, and this was a very small beginning, and it just was one of those concepts that took hold in our household. We started them out when they were very young by giving them uh, an allowance of a dollar each in dimes. And in our house, because we had four children, and the more children that you have, the harder it gets to communicate because you're running around making sure you've said it to each one. And inevitably, one of them will say, you didn't tell me that. And so what we did to circumvent that somewhat, although you can't totally circumvent it totally, we uh, would on Sunday nights have what we call family council. We would all sit down at the uh, breakfast area, and we would just go over kind of the week at what was happening so that we were sure all four of them were there and everybody was hearing the same thing at the same time. And so we began then at those times to give them a dollar in dimes. And then they just had a little lunch boxes in those days. Um, and every year, you know, there was a new Disney, whatever, or new plaything, so they'd want a new one. So the old ones we just took and divided into three compartments, and one was for God, one was save, and one was spent. And when you got your dimes, you had to go immediately to your room and put one in the God holder and one in the save holder, and you could put the other eight in spend. And then we would talk about, you know, you could choose to put more in the God one, but right now, living under our roof, we're going to start this way. One, 10% goes over here for God. And that was on Sunday night. But they loved when the next Sunday came, taking their dime themselves and putting it in the offering. Now here, you would have a hard time doing that. You'd have to go find the black boxes and put it in an envelope, I think. But anyway, they loved carrying that themselves. It was their own money, and they would do it. And uh, it gave us a great way for even when they were little, for them to have some connection between money and cost. So that if we were looking at something, even in the dollar store, uh, you know, you, it will take you two weeks to get something here because your eight spending dimes is not enough. You have to have ten. So at least two weeks before you can buy any of these objects. And if you're in another store, we would say, how many weeks is it going to take for you to save enough dimes for this? But it was a way that they could evaluate cost and time and money. And... Uh, my thought was when uh, Lehman Brothers declared they were shutting their doors is that someone there never calculated how many dimes it was going to take when you buy short and borrow money to do it and the call comes in to pay it. Nobody had figured out how long you needed or how many dimes for that, and that's foolish. And you think, how? I mean, we're all sitting around saying, how did people do that? They're supposed to be financial wizards. 
But I think creating a connection between value and money is very good for your children. And so that was a big hit at our house. And I will have to say that this is one area that, as adults, I feel like they have all done well. Not done well in that they're all rich, but, you know, being careful with money uh, and not gotten into uh, some deep situation so, so far to this point. Or at least I'm not aware of it. Maybe I should say that. Oh, when they were little. Like the youngest one was probably two or three, and then, the, you know, the older one was. My children are four. There's four of them, and they're two years apart. So, But, yeah, we started that when they were very little. And... Uh, it was a great way uh, to teach. And, and you know, it was, it, like I say, it was one of those things we started and had no idea it was going to grow like it did. But it was always uh, a good way for them to measure out things uh, economically. Okay, the ninth flare and the ninth commandment is, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And what the basic concept in this commandment is knowing what's true uh, and valuing truth. And um, I think this one's maybe more important for your generation than it was from our generation. But you need to lay a foundation where they can distinguish truth from imagination. And so we would just use a phrase, make beliefs fun, but it didn't really happen. The Bible really happened. It can help us see life clearly. And so we would always relate, imagination is fun, it's make-believe, uh, but it didn't, it didn't really happen. But we would always correlate that to the Bible is true. And uh, if you have just a large Bible, not king size, but, you know, just pretty good size, put it out somewhere in your house and put a pair of glasses on top of it. We would say when we read the Bible, it's like putting on glasses that correct our vision about life because the Bible is true. And so we would just constantly want to be bringing that. And we did a lot. I'm... I'm creative, and I like to do creative things, and we did a lot of creative things, but we would always tag it as imagination. And so we did Santa Claus, and we said, Santa is fun, he's coming, he's going to bring a lot of gifts, but Santa's imagination, and, and we'll enjoy it. And we never explained it any further than that, and as they got older, they started putting two and two together. We did the Easter Bunny. We dressed up for Halloween, but we said, this is imagination. This doesn't really happen. Uh, Star Wars was really big when the boys were growing up, and we said, great, you can play Star Wars, but it's imagination. It didn't really happen. Just remember, God's word is true, and so when we're living life, we're making decisions, we want to be checking out what God's word has to say. Now, your generation, Disney is so pervasive that uh, I think they have a hard time distinguishing reality and uh, imagination. For instance, one of my friend's little granddaughter came home from preschool several days in a row, and she said she had asked a different little boy each day, a different little boy, to marry her. So her parents were a little concerned after about the fifth day, and uh, they said, Vivian, uh, normally girls don't go around asking guys to marry them, but they really don't when they're four. And so they got to talking to her about it. Well, here's what was her thinking in her mind as they started having this conversation with her. She loves all the princess stories. She loves all of them. You know, she can tick off all the names, and that's fun, and she loves them, and that's imagination. But what she had concluded from all the princess stories is, when you're a princess, something bad is going to happen to you, and the only way you're rescued is if you have a prince. So in her mind, 
not just what happens to Cinderella, but what happened to Cinderella and what happened to Sleeping Beauty and what happened to on and on and on could all possibly happen to her. And she was going to need at least five or six princesses, princes to get her out of trouble. So, it, you know, that was her thinking. And there's nothing wrong with any of those princess things. My grandchildren love all of that. But I just say tag it. Imagination. It didn't really happen. It's fun. And also, you know, there's so much you can do on the computer game-wise that just be saying, this is not real. This is imagination. The Bible is true. We want to gear our life on what is true, and we want to make judgments and decisions, and we don't want to get so wrapped up in imagination that it controls our lives. So um, I would encourage you to just think through how in your family you're going to handle that truth imagination thing. The Tenth Commandment is thou shall not covet. And this is a tough one because we all covet. Children covet. Adults covet. We love the world. And we just have a propensity in our flesh for the things in it. So we thought, how are we going to counteract this? And what we decided is that we wanted to teach our children to love the world, but the way that God loved the world. And so we just keyed off of John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his son that we might have eternal life. And so that if we could teach our children to love the world the way God loved the world, to understand that God loved it enough to give so that they could have eternal life. And so what we did when they were very young is that we divided, uh, we just took a flat map of the world, and we divided it into seven, the seven continents. And there were six of us. So we, could, we all picked a continent, and uh, nobody picked Antarctica, and so we never prayed for Antarctica. But everybody had a continent. So somebody out here maybe want to take that on because it got lost in, in all the years we were doing this. Um, but each one picked a continent, and on Fridays we prayed for our continent. And you could not, when you came, you could pray for your continent any time during the day, but you couldn't have Friday afternoon free until you had prayed for your continent cause, until we set the habit. And then they got to where it was, it was something they kind of enjoyed. But we just did it in little notebooks like this, like Josh had Africa. This is not his notebook. I just duplicated it. But you would just put down uh, what you were praying for your continent that day. And sometimes it was just a sticker of the Bible, and you were praying that people who lived in your continent would be able to have a Bible and they'd be able to read it. Sometimes it was a drawing of maybe a radio uh, and, you know, I was giving them suggestions of what they could pray for their continents, that they might hear about Jesus on a radio because radio was cheap and it could go out all over the world. Sometimes maybe it would be like a, a, steth- a drawing of a stethoscope and praying that maybe a doctor would want to go to their continent and tell people about Jesus. And so we just had various little things all the time that they were praying for their continent. And... Uh, It's been very interesting to me to watch them as adults. Josh had Africa, and last year he and his wife went to Africa for a week with their church, and now that they've been back this year, they have been very involved in a lot of things to do with Africa and the places that they had gone. And I smile because I think, okay, all every Friday he was praying for Africa growing up. Um, The youngest one prayed for all the islands of the world, she took Australia and all the islands of the world, and she is an island girl. I mean, if you talk about going on a trip, she wants to know, can we go to an island? She just loves going to an island. And I laugh because she prayed for islands. And she would be, 
we had Operation World book there where they kept their little uh, prayer notebooks for the continents. And, you, you know, it has categories like islands, and then it lists all of them. And she would be looking up when she was praying for that. She'd look up one, you know, she wanted to pray for specifically. Now, the one who had North America is a homebody. That boy, you have trouble getting out of town for anything. But he's really involved with young life in his neighborhood in Carrollton. He's still in Carrollton. And so, you know, God just turned his heart more that way. I mean, he, he is not going to Africa, I don't believe, in the near future. But he's very, you know, he has a heart for people here to know the Lord. Okay, so I would encourage you to teach your children how to love the world like God loves the world. So these are my ten convictions. And I started out by asking you to think about the bag that you like to travel with and what you might change. And now I want you to think about what are your convictions. You have convictions. Even as you've walked in here this morning, you all have convictions. And children are very perceptive. They will figure out what your convictions are. They will figure out what matters to you. So don't waste these precious years that you have. Be purposeful. Keep it simple. But think about your conviction bag and the flares you would want to have on it that your kids might take with them when they leave home. So what is the next step? I would say to pray and to talk with your husband. And I put on the back of your cover sheet some verses that motivate me to pray for uh, convictions and think about teaching convictions to my grandchildren at this point. Uh, And so you might want to share those with your husband and and just read through them, asking God to help you think through what, what are convictions. What are ten things we want to have that when our children leave home, they know that uh, we firmly believe. Uh, And then just get a bag and collect little things that will help you teach them. It's much easier to use the teachable moment if you just got a basket or a bag that has things together in it that you can grab than if you're thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to go get this or do that. But as you think about a conviction, think about it's way up here, How can I pull it down to a simple sentence? How could I draw a picture of it? What is something in their life experience that I can relate it to? And I think if you ask God for those things, he'll help you make those connections with it. Now, like I look at my family, and uh, one of my daughter-in-laws is not a teacher. She's a scientist, but she is a great communicator. And so she would not do this the same way I would because she talks to her children a lot more verbally. It would be a lot more verbal than mine. It would be more of a picture-drawn thing. One of my daughter-in-laws just needs a plan. She just wants, give me a plan, hand it to me, and I I can work the plan. Uh, So, you know, you're different, but just do it with what fits your personality, your style, and just do it as you go. And the reason I brought these things today is I want to show you that I didn't laminate anything. I didn't. I didn't have a computer. I didn't do anything on the computer. I just took leftover cards, and I took some felt, and, you know, I just did it at the time. And God let a lot of them work. Now, I did a lot of other things that, didn't, you know, that I didn't even tell you today because they didn't work. Uh, so these are the ones that seem like they, they um, lasted. Now, the last thing I want to say to you is that children are not robots, and this is not math. And you cannot think, I'm going to ask God to help me teach my child ten convictions, and when they leave home, they're going to believe them and be following them. You do it 
because it's the right thing to do, because we are called upon to represent God well to our children. But we do not do it because we can force them to accept our conviction. They will make that choice for themselves. And I wish I could tell you that my four children are these beautifully wrapped packages of my ten convictions. They are not. They are not. But you know what I know in my heart? I know Philippians 1.6, that I can be confident that God is at work in them until the day of Christ Jesus. And I did what I felt like God put in my heart to do when they were little. But I am free now. They are responsible before God. But I feel like I laid a foundation for them. And in many ways, they choose to follow some of these. But, you know, they're not perfect. And your children are not, I hate to tell you this at this point, your children are not perfect. They will not always do what you want them to do. And even as adults, they will annoy you a lot. So uh, it isn't like I'm going to have a conviction bag, I'm going to be teaching these ten convictions, and they are just going to be, you know, little sweet hearts the rest of their life. But you love them in spite of that, which I certainly do. So they, they are under construction. That's the way I, I look at them. Uh, let me close in prayer, and then I think um, Alyssa, I was trying to remember it. I said I get all the Alyssas and the Alyssas mixed up. Alyssa is going to come, and we'll have a question and answer. Father, I do just thank you for these moments this morning, and I thank you uh, for how you helped James and me as we were raising the kids. And I thank you for the, the fun times we had and the difficult times. I thank you for the fun times we have now and the difficult times because you are sovereign. We believe your word is true. We believe that there is an eternity. And, Father, that just helps us as we process all of life and rest in you. And I just pray for each of these girls this morning. I pray that they will not leave overwhelmed or burdened down with guilt. I pray you just help them to leave with one idea that they could begin with and that you would just help them as they represent you well to their children. In Jesus' name, amen. I just have a question on uh, how you handled when um, the kids were exposed to people that disobeyed. Like, um, uh, if like one of their friends' family got a divorce, and you had been teaching them about you know marriage is forever and ever. How you answered that? Because my fear would be that you know if I say you know it, it was forever and ever, and they broke that, then they're going to go tell their little friend who's going to tell their parents, and then that's going to create a, a problem. Where I still want to say truth. So yeah. And I think you do it, first of all, in the terms of how you have been generally explaining marriage and families. And in, in, in our case, I would say uh, God's plan is for that to be forever and ever. And are they under the umbrella of obedience? Or are they moving out of it? And then I would go on to talk about how can we help care for some of the fallout of moving out from that umbrella. You know, how can we as a family, we can pray for them. Let's put them on our prayer list this week and, and pray for them. Maybe we need to invite your friend over to our house and have some time with them and be uh, just helping them as they process through. I would not sugarcoat it. I would not say, yeah. oh, it's fine, it doesn't make any difference. 
But I wouldn't do it with like, oh, well, that's horrible, and we're not going to have anything to do with them. I don't want you hanging around. You know, I would not do that. I would make it encompassing, but encompassing within the framework of how we've laid those foundations. So, um, and I and here's the thing that I would say constantly as your children are growing up, and there's all this interaction with other people. Make your house the place for people to come. Just be ready to do that. You know, you can always come here after the basketball game. Uh, if you want to hang out Friday night and just watch a, a video, come to our house and you can hang out Friday night and watch a video. We'll, I'll buy the popcorn. You make your house. Now, our house had no swimming pool. It had no pool table. It didn't have really very many toys. But we just said, you know, everybody can come at any time. So... Uh, I think that's that you start when they're little too, that you make your house a safe place for your kids, but for them to invite their friends and, and uh, so. How do you make that happen? How do you make that happen? Yeah. In your house or with kids? Like, how do you make your house be more? Uh, you think, what is it that they enjoy doing, and how can I facilitate that in my house in a godly, safe way? I mean, like when the kids were teenagers, it was when the, all the video stores were open and they, you know, they did like to rent videos. And so I would say to them, Friday morning, I will be at the video store when it first opens so I can get first pick of the videos. What is something you would like to watch? And then I would, you know, maybe that one wasn't going to be there or whatever, but I would ask them. But then I would, if I looked at the jacket on that one and thought, we're not watching that, you know, and then I would choose, but I would choose something, you know, that I thought they would. So I... I, a lot of times, just was a facilitator to do that. Food, they come for food. <laughs> they do. Sam, get a, cl- a Sam's membership, uh, especially if you have boys. Oh, my gosh. I was telling Gail that the other day. She was saying her son didn't quite do that. But I mean, I just would stock in food for boys. Uh, girls don't do that so much. Uh-huh. I just need a has a bit of a, I guess it's just the age, but is very high or very low. I mean, just very enthusiastic and happy one moment, and then mm-hmm. just has a really sour attitude sometimes. And so, what do you? How can we encourage him to have a happy heart and to? I mean, he has to obey, but he needs to obey with a happy heart too. And so, just that whole me, you know, that attitude. That um, yeah. At three, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Yeah, because that's just they're just emotionally maturing. Yeah. And I, w- I would worry about more the obedience. And, you know, you may feel that way and your feelings are okay right now. I mean, you can't go around and hit your sister. I mean, I would set some boundaries. But some of that, that just yeah, bad mood kind of thing, I would give them a time frame that that's okay. You know, if, if you, this is the way you feel, you might want to go to your room and play so that the rest of us are not bothered by that. You know, and but I I wouldn't tr- I wouldn't discipline them for feelings at age three. I would discipline them for, choose, you know, what I see in those younger years of discipline is where you have laid out clearly something that violates what they should be doing, and they know that, and you have clearly laid out what will happen when they violate it, and you are carrying forth on those things. But um, now. You know, that child may grow up and be a melancholy adult, but I don't believe that you can discipline them out of that at age three. But I think you can help them set boundaries and learn how to manage those feelings. Yeah. We talk about self-control. And like yeah. we, can't, we can't just act 
how we yeah. feel all the time. Right? But you can say, I, I understand that you have this. And sometimes drawing pictures, why don't you sit down and draw me a picture of how you feel right now? Let's draw this circle, and this is your face. Why don't you fill in on your face what you're feeling? And honestly, with our boys, at one point we put a, um, a boxing thing that, you know, like boxers box on. We hung it in the garage because one of our sons is just so aggressive and hyper and risk-taking, and he would be so angry. And we would just say, you can go out in the garage and punch that all you want to and get rid of some of that. But you cannot stay in here and slam things or yell at anybody. Yeah. Can, can you comment also on siblings and just being kind to one another? Like, how, do, how did you try because yours are all really close together how did you we talk about yeah, you know baby brother is a blessing he's your right, best friend right, we love right. him but how do you really incorporate yeah. from that? and that's a lifelong thing and God uh, <laughs> but here's what I would say a family God set up families to be labs and in this lab you're going to have to learn how to get along with someone in your space and sharing with people and God did that on purpose that's why he makes families because when you leave this house you're going to be with people and so God is going to bring exactly in your family what you need to learn in order to leave here and have it. And here's what you want. Here's, and, and this is what I want. And, and this is what I want for my grandchildren as cousins. You just want them to all love each other and have fun and play and share and just look forward to being together. But that isn't who, who any of us are. And so it is learning what is acceptable and where the boundaries are, you know. Uh, I would not set an expectation of these two are going to be so close, they'll just be inseparable and they'll always be out for each other, you know, watching each other's back. I would pray for those things, but I would accept the reality of a lot of that will come as years go by. And as I notice even our, our grandchildren, now there's two in each family, you know, those two aren't particularly wild about each other because for the first child, and this is so true with your first child more than your second, third, or fourth, that space has been cut in half, 50. That attention has been cut in half, 50%. It's a hard task to learn how to do all of that. So I would, I would again, set some boundaries. Uh, you know, you cannot pinch. You cannot knock down. You cannot just come up and jerk away a toy. And You know, let's role play. You know, how can you take away a toy so it's not just jerking? How can you ask? Maybe have a phrase. May I please play with this? Have I heard that? Did I hear you say that? Or did I just see you take it? You know, and it is so, t you know, it takes all your day to do it. <laughs> now, I will encourage you, if you have more than two, by the time you get to the third and fourth, they do mimic what you've established with the others. Because that's how you say, how do people have all these children? Well, one thing is, if you can work it through with one and two, three and four, I mean, I only went to four, so I only have that experience. Three and four will follow, kind of follow. You know, so your hardest battle is one and two, I think. So. And by the way, I am not, you know, the world-renowned specialist on child rearing either, so I'm saying all these things. You sound like it. Yeah, I know. I, I was thinking that. I was thinking I'm sounding like that. Like, no, I am not. Great for all My that. children, you know, were... Um, I want to start scripture memory with my daughter, and she's three. Mm -hmm. so what is a good plan, like... 
how long should we stay on a scripture, and how often should you go back and review or cover what all you've uh, learned? Well, when my kids were growing up, I had Good News Club, and it met every week, and we learned a verse every week, and they were very capable of doing that. But I had an out, you know, I had that outside uh, discipline because I had to teach it every week, and I was teaching it to them, and then they were ha- having to come to Good News Club the next week and say it. So I had an outside influence that enabled me to do that. But I did see they're capable of that. But when you don't have something like that extraneous, uh, I would say to start out, you know, be realistic. Do one a month. And look at your calendar and think, January, February, March, April, you know, 12 months. We'll learn 12 verses this year and start there. And if you get behind, don't worry about it. You know, learn seven. But, but do start with a plan of thinking, okay, maybe one a month, and we'll just practice it. We'll play a game with it. We'll sing it to something. We'll, let, we'll say it for Daddy. We'll say it for Grandma. You know, we'll march around the house and have a parade and say it. Just do. We'll draw pictures of it. Just work on it. I still have a lot of their drawings from verses at home. I kept, which they're all going, are you going to throw all that stuff? When are you going to throw all that stuff out? <laughs> um, when you were explaining the eternity... Um, conviction, mm-hmm. and you were talking about, you know, when someone dies, mm-hmm. and you said um, the real you will go be with Jesus or without Jesus. Do you say that until they've accepted Christ, or do you just say they'll be with Jesus? Like, at what point do you... To my own children, I just would say they will be with Jesus. But if I were okay. explaining it in general terms about, like, what happens in all of life, I would say... The real person lives inside is going to live forever, either with God or without God. Okay. You are going to live with God because, and I just would talk to them like you are going to live with God because you you know about Jesus and have asked him into your life. And I would talk like that even when they were little and hadn't yet done it. Okay, so you would still talk that way. Yeah, yeah. And then how would um, how would that transition whenever... Like, do you just recognize when they're asking questions maybe more about it, just talk more specifically Yeah, and I let those questions, I would recommend that you let those questions come to you rather than you initiating. Because when children are ready, they're going to ask you questions. Like one of my little granddaughters asked me a great question over Christmas about we had done the nativity play before we had opened gifts. And she just had a great question. But I thought if I had tried to teach that to all of them, it wouldn't have worked. But all of a sudden that was in her mind as she came to me with a question. And uh, one of my nephews um, did something when the children were early elementary school, and I was crying, and they wanted to know why I was crying. And that was a point of where I said I was, cr- I was sad because the real person who lived inside of him did not know Jesus. And that was just a natural, a natural step at that point because something very tragic had happened. Um, and so it was just a natural point. So it wasn't like I had put that on the calendar to say, to say oh, I'm going to start teaching them this. Just as life happens. Okay. And as you're involved with people, you know, things happen, you'll just have opportunities to. My son is three and a half, and he's, we always talk about God being with him. And he's very literal, and he's like, but I don't see him. I don't see mm-hmm. him. Where is he? And mm-hmm. Do you have any way to explain that to a three-and-a-half-year-old about you know, God is with you, but he can't see him. And he's having a hard time grasping that. Yeah, and I think you just have to leave it at you can't see him, but he is there. 
because the Bible tells us that. And so I would pick a verse to memorize that just says that and just be connecting that, yes, you don't see him, but the Bible says that he, he said, and I did teach him that, Hebrews 13:5. I will never leave you. Hold up your hand, five fingers, I will never leave you. That's what Jesus says. So you can't see him. This is his promise, Hebrews 13:5. I will never leave you. So we did learn that one when they were little. Because um, there, there's no other, to me, there's no other thing to say, but you can't see him. But I read in the paper, no, I get a little uh, teaching thing, maybe from somebody, I read this, that this child uh, that is um, mentally retarded uh, but has received Christ and he had some heart problems and he went to the doctor. And uh, when the doctor was listening to his heart and everything, he said to the doctor, do you see Jesus in there? Because he lives there. And the doctor said, no, I just see your heart. And the little boy said, well, he is there. I mean, he was so sure of it. And so you see that childlike faith? That's what the Bible talks about. We have to become like children. So, Tyra? Um, my daughter's also three and a half. And she, uh, she talks a lot, of, she asks a lot of questions now about, well, she says she's sad that she won't live forever and why God couldn't give us bodies that would last forever. And with my husband so sick, knowing that this is a discussion we'll have sooner than we're comfortable with, I'm trying to impress on her that life is valuable now, but that eternal life will be good too so it's a hard balance so how do you express that we have to live that life now is as important as life later you know because when they're that young she's if I tell her that heaven will be wonderful she then asks then why are we alive now do you understand Mm -hmm. like how you balance Mm -hmm. those right two lives yeah and I think and and Tara's husband is very ill so I'm you know, I would be cautious here in, in how you would represent that will to her. But I think one thing probably that's lurking in her heart right now is thinking if her daddy dies, will she see him again? So one thing I would reassure her about heaven, you will see your daddy in heaven. You will see me in heaven. Sometime my body house is going to wear out. You will see me in heaven. And I would liken it to when a grandparent leaves your house, you don't see them for a while. And then there's the time you're looking forward to seeing them. And that's what heaven is like, that we're looking forward. And that we go to heaven at God's invitation. God is the one who made birthdays, and he's also the one who invites us at the time to go to heaven. And then God will have a time to invite you to heaven, and you will see your daddy again. But in the meantime, until God invites us to heaven, he has a reason for us being here. And one of the things he wants us to do is to enjoy him, to enjoy our family, and to be alert to how we can you know, tell other people about him and care for other people for him. So I would, I would, I would put that, you know, he made you, he designed your birthday, he designed your daddy's birthday. He is the one who decides. He invites you to heaven. Just like you get a birthday party invitation and you're excited to go. When it is time for Daddy to go to heaven, God's invitation will be exciting for him and we will be excited for him to go. And at that moment, God will help us with understanding that and being okay and knowing we're going to be taken care of. I would anticipate some of her fears, but I would make very clear to her, God is not going to... Help us right this minute. Be ready for all of that because it isn't here right now. So God wants us to enjoy today and tomorrow because all of us maybe would go to be with Jesus tomorrow. 
So, you know, let's stop and pray for Tara. What's your husband's name? Steve. And what are your children? Three, one's three. Can you tell me, Chris, what her children are? Cooper, Okay. Cooper and Kate, let's pray for them. Lord, we pause to just recognize you are a sovereign God. And right now, Tyra and her family are in a deep valley. And I pray that your presence would be known to them. And I pray that you will give Tyra the mantle of strength and wisdom that she needs to be able to care for her husband and care well for her children not just physically, Lord, but even emotionally and spiritually. God, will you bring the words and the concepts and the ideas that will help comfort Stephen and Katie right through this? Will you bring the words from others that, um, and things from your word that will encourage Tyra? And, Lord, we just commit Steve to you. We pray that you would use him greatly each day that he is alive here on earth. And I